1: Changed the catchphrase of the show. Wait,
0: what, what was the catchphrase before?
1: It was just hello. <laughs> and now, and oh, now, God. And now it's from Good Vibes Central in Maine and Chicago. Hello.
0: Two, two famously Good Vibes locations. <laughs> oh, man.
1: Hyper Good Vibes. Hyper Good Vibes. Um. Yes, it's Maroon on Mars with Matt and Hillary. I'm Matt, she's Hillary, and we're reading The Years of Rice and Salt. That's
0: that's right. This is uh, our Kim Stanley Robinson read-along podcast. And today we are in book three of The Years of Rice and Salt. Book three, which is called Ocean Continents.
1: Ying Zhao, uh, Ocean Continents. And this is, I love this uh, book. I love this chapter. Um it follows on uh, the chapter, The Hajj and the Heart, where we were um, in, a, in a completely different part of the world. Right? We were mm-hmm. in the, what, is, what the characters in book three, in this book, constantly refer to as the real world. <laughs> and um, what happens in this one is they encounter a, if you will, a new world.
0: Yes. Yes. Although, when they say the real world, do they just mean China here?
1: I, I don't know. Like it, I think that term actually comes up more at the end when they're in uh, the Incan Empire and um, they, everything that's happening is so like nightmarishly surreal. Um, right.
0: Right. But I think and, that I think uh, what's his name? Came. How are you pronouncing that?
1: Keim. Kaim? Kaim? Keim. I don't know. <laughs>
0: yes uh uh, (laughs) probably not (laughs) probably probably not but uh i think he thinks he has that thought about being in a different world and not being in the real world also when they're um uh uh, with the miwok right before they get to the before they get to the incas Mm -hmm. i mean that's a kind of Yeah, I mean, I think one way we could characterize this, how this section works, is that, like, um, this is the, the um, like, this is a rewriting of the narrative of the, quote, unquote, the so-called discovery of the Mm -hmm. so-called new world, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so we get a lot of stuff about, like what's the what what is the world why why do you think one world is the real world a lot of stuff about mapping Mm -hmm. etc
1: yeah i this it this is such a fascinating uh chapter or book um uh and i and i love it a lot because for for lots of reasons um Mm -hmm. but it really because it rethinks that kind of the discovery which I feel like it, it, it rethinks it more along the lines of encounter than it does mm-hmm. on the kind of what we learn in our like, you know, high school history classes of, of discovery, yeah. um, that it really create, sheds a completely different light on, on what that, what that meant, I guess, what the, what it meant for these, t- for two cultures, radically different cultures to sort of encounter each other, um, and stumble upon each other. And the differences too, between the uh, European story of discovery that, that is the one that's quote unquote real in our world. (coughs) um, And the one that is told here, the differences between who encounters whom and under what circumstances um, sort of radically shift our, understanding as readers of what this, what the meaning of this is and what its potentialities are too. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, and if we like, if we posit, um, a reader for this novel, I mean, a probable reader for this novel as, um, a white, um, uh, Euro American person, right. Mm-hmm. Which I think is not a bad bet about, um, uh-huh. who the primary audience of this novel is right. um, then we have this kind of really interesting doubling up of the estrangements because of course um for that person to take so you know in the store in the um story you know the sort of poisonous mythology story of columbus discovering america mm-hmm. you know the school child the american school child learning that story is positioned uh to understand themselves as in you know es- essentially descending from that discovery mm. and identifying with um the discoverer right mm-hmm. with columbus mm-hmm. right you know who think thankfully statues of him are being pulled down all over the country right now yeah what um, a
1: time to be reading this chapter right? it's
0: perfect yeah we have a, there are a bunch in chicago actually that should come down uh, mm-hmm.
1: and have not um mm-hmm.
0: Uh, But, uh, you know, leaving that aside for the moment, like that sort of so that identification, however much like, you know, in fact, um, the uh, the world that Columbus came from might actually be quite strange to us. It's posited as Europe, as European, as the European source of, you know, is this understandable source of the kind of cultural world that we live in now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in this chapter, we get this kind of doubling estrangement, because the, you know, the expansionist empire (laughs) that our travelers um, are heading out unintentionally Mm -hmm. heading out from uh, is China, um, which we've already seen, right? And we've already sort of participated in an earlier moment in, in the life of that particular empire um and and seen it as like extraordinarily developed and complex and rich um and also like not something that we can kind of take for granted right and here so i think that that i think that that is a really interesting way that this this book of the novel um puts puts pressure on st- on the sort of naturalness of colonialist narrative is mm-hmm. also by having, you know, the ex- the quote-unquote explorers who here are not explorers at all because they are just like, compl- you know, they're stranded. Right. By yeah. they're stranded in the doldrums, right? They're stranded without wind. Um, but, you know, like uh, our identifications with them uh, are a strain. If, if we identify with them, we do it in an estranged way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not only because they're coming from China, but also... Um, because uh or you know the version of china extant in this novel uh, but also because like their versions of people who we've met before and mm, we're yes you know constantly in that estranged relationship with them
1: yeah i think it helps to although someone i think on the facebook asked us sort of how closely we were going to be kind of analyzing the different incarnations of of folks and you know, I, I think I said before that it's not even <clears throat> something I really <throat> noticed my first time through the novel, necessarily. I think I probably noticed that, that certain characters' names started with the same letter. But um, but I think that, like, uh, it does help to orient our expectations, certainly, of, like, who which characters are going to do what and, and behave in certain ways to understand that the characters whose names start with K are all the same kind of like incarnate uh, reincarnate string of incarnations the characters uh who start with b and the characters who start with i um as well as p and s but kb and i are really like the most important uh through lines here so that also kind of sets us up to understand certain patterns that might um that might structure this this like story of encounter right um
0: Right, right. And I, I do think that this, I mean, if, you know, I guess, I mean, I think like you, the first time I read this, it took me a while to realize that the specificity with which we were tracking like the same set of characters. I mean, I got that idea of the Jati earlier,
1: right.
0: and I, and I, I still kind of think that the, the idea of like... Um, that grouping or that that sort of like link between people that reappears and reappears. I, th- I think of that, the relationship there as being more important than the particular characters. Right, yeah. But, like uh, but I they, definitely... Like
1: what the characters are supposed to mean or stand for. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. It's because more important, part, like the relationships that they have, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because I feel like if you think about like... Um, I mean, to me, um, there's like... I mean, to me one of the things that this that uh this chapter does is particularly if like, you know, I think the easiest characters to have picked up on are the one who's bold in the first book and the one who's mm-hmm. Q in the first book. Mm-hmm. Right. Um uh uh but in in this um uh in this book the relationship between the two of them is quite changed, right? I mean and I, I think that like I would want to, you know, think that the the B character in this chapter um, bears some relation to what we know or think about Bold or Bastami, um, but also is quite different in some ways, in ways mm-hmm. that might make us think that, like, it, it actually must be the case um, that, like, the material historical circumstances into which one is born um, maybe have as much to do with, like, um, you know what you're like and what you do as Mm. you know your uh soul you know
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and also like the happenstance of uh when you meet the people Mm. that you meet who are members Mm -hmm. of your jati Mm -hmm. right like obviously kime who is you know a 40 year old ex-pirate admiral of the chinese empire is not going to relate to butterfly a six-year-old miwok girl in the same way that bold and q related to each other right or that um right. Although uh, there is yeah.
0: that like on the ship when um when Butterfly is ill, right, after they've just um
1: mm-hmm.
0: after they've just left the, the Miwok territory, right? Um there is the scene of Kaim caring for Butterfly, which is like a kind of inversion mm-hmm. of the bold caring for Q in the first
1: book yeah, sure. in a
0: way that I think is really beautiful and also maybe suggests that like the relationship between those two either is not what we first think of it as, or is actually much more complicated than we as yet know, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so um, I think maybe just in brief summary of what the chapter is um, the, the Chinese emperor sends a fleet out to basically do some like soft imperialism in <laughs> japan right rather than conquering japan militarily they're going to kind of insidiously um establish a port and then take it over economically um this huge fleet is led by admiral Kaim of anam which is uh vietnam um and he is accompanied i mean he, there are like eight huge ships and 18 small ships and Crazy huge ships right? Crazy huge. Giant. Yes Um, similar like thinking back to the ones from uh, the first chapter uh, Wake to Emptiness when when Bold and Q are on these ginormous um, ships with like hundreds and hundreds of people and they arrive you know they arrive into ports with like there are no pack animals there it's all the labor is done by just human beings. It just speaks to the enormous amount of like manpower that China has, and the enormous amount and the the size of the ship speak to the the technological uh, advancement and and uh, uh, um, knowledge of this of this extremely advanced civilization. Right. Um, the the flagship has a doctor named I Chin. Chin. I Chin. Uh, who will play a uh, a major role in this very brief chapter? Um, on their way to uh, to Japan, they get caught up in a in the divine calm in a uh, there's a, in the doldrums. Basically, no wind is blowing. They uh, the um, Kuroshio um, uh, current of the Pacific Ocean takes them out into Pacific Ocean, and um, they are basically screwed. Because their mm-hmm. ship is so big that they have no way to get back, um, to turn around, um, uh, and they are just simply at the mercy of of the ocean currents. Um, they wind up in um, what we call uh, the west coast of America, um, mm-hmm. specifically um, uh, San Francisco. The Bay Area. The Bay Area. <laughs> uh they spend some time there they give everybody smallpox and then they leave and then they wind up in south america and they meet the incas and almost all get killed and then they escape and get back to uh china it's an extremely efficiently told story like i think this is the shortest book of the novel Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and uh but it is also just filled with sort of i mean for the i mean i think they're gone for like 200 days or or no two no wait 20 months 20 months that's right um and for all the time that they're gone uh it's kind of filled with incident but also uh the parts that we don't see are just the parts where they are drifting at sea for right right months and months at a time and going absolutely insane um uh yeah
0: yeah i mean this is another like you know all the books that we've are the chapters of the book that we've read thus far. Um also this one, although you're right, it's shorter, it covers a ton of space, right? There's like a big you know, they just yeah. they go a really long, long yeah. way, right? Super long journey. And that's not even counting like the journey to the Bardo. Like that's like it mm-hmm. just like uh, you know on the globe. They're going a long way. Um uh but like all of the the books thus far, the the chapter moves between these periods of um, sort of very immersive kind of stasis, you know, so here, like total immobility, right? I mean, if we think about the first chapter, like in Bold's like sort of struggle to survive where he's actually not moving very far Mm -hmm. and he's in this period of starvation that has a certain kind of spiritual quality to it, much as it also is quite threatening, right? Or like Bistami at the, at the uh, shrine um you know just day after day fasting at the shrine here the periods suspended in the doldrum not in the doldrums not able to have the ship move are contrasted with these moments of like a great deal of motion and then as you were saying before also encounter right Um, Mm -hmm. repeated encounters with um uh Here, the sense, not just like different people and different life ways, but but something that feels like an entirely different world. And indeed, like, you know, they have arrived at something that is not on their maps of the world. Like at some point we learn that the best the best maps of the world are made by the Muslim Cartographers mm-hmm. um, but this place where they've arrived that they keep thinking of as a giant island mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. you know not not wrong right mm-hmm. but uh, is is not on those maps and they have to try to they have to try to figure out like where it is that they've uh, where it is that they've gotten to um, at the same time as they're kind of wrestling with the sense of the utter strangeness, the extreme difference of this place that they've arrived at.
1: Yeah, the, the the journey they take tests the limits of their knowledge and their ability to even know the world, right? Like each in is always, is trying to figure out where in the hell they are, where in the world they are. They know they're not in hell. Um, but, um, you know, by, by these methods that you, <coughs> that you mentioned and says, you know, uh, the measurements of the size of the world that we have seem correct. I have verified them myself personally, but this is not on any maps that we have. It's such a huge island; it's hard to believe. You know, they're constantly: is it Africa? I don't think so. Is it uh, Lisboa or you know, um, Fulan, which which I guess is like uh, the, the the west coast of Europe, essentially, of what we would call Europe. Um, and they're like, no, it can't be that because you know. It, 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 the 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 descriptions we have of the coastline are all are all different and wrong and who are and these people don't speak any languages that we know and all this kind of stuff um, and so uh, so what happens also on their journey is that a lot of the people or just the crew on the ship fall back on like superstition as a way to understand what's going on so they think they posit that the divine wind that is meant to protect Japan from invasion mm. is is what's behind this or um, they they kill seabirds and eat them for luck. they fall back on like luck and superstition to try to help them um and uh so it, it they really are like journey jury, journeying into a kind of complete like um unknown um and and it's really interesting to think about the way that they th- think of. The Americas as a large island, right, because it really recalibrates as re as American readers, especially it recalibrates our sort of understanding of you know the world and how it 's laid out and and maps you know it really points out the kind of political and historical contingency behind maps and mapping um, right when right. you think about it right um,
0: right yeah, I, I think that this I, I think this chapter is very is actually quite clear about that, about how much, you know, mapping is an act of world making. Mm, Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, which I would, uh, I, we should talk about the when they first encounter the Miwoks and the, the mapping part, but I was just going to say before we get there, um, on 197 while they're still um just like in the ship and they don't know where they are right after that like they they eat the seabirds for luck you Mm know um and i think you know one of the things that i really like about this book is that um in the way i mean whatever this is just like such a kim stanley robinson novel thing but uh the novels take very seri- the novel takes very seriously, and it really wants you to see the sort of process uh, of you know um, forming scientific in the largest sense mm. of that word. Yes, you know um, understandings of the world. So that could include scientific in that way. It could include um, you know sociological understanding, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or even or even poetic understanding of the world. I think mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, but also takes, you know, partly because like we're we're also in this space where we're traveling around with a, um, you know, a bunch of souls who keep being reborn into different configuration into mm-hmm. different configurations. Like we also get the chance to take seriously. Um, you know the stuff that is superstition, right? As mm-hmm. alternative ways of knowing yeah, the world, right? Exactly. You know, people have pe- the people on the ship have different kinds of access to different ways of knowing, and and here in this particular, on this particular ship, like that is a very sort of stratified access. Like mm-hmm. the regular sailors are mm-hmm. the ones who are like, "Hey, is goddess? What's her name? Tian Fei." yeah. You know. It, she's gonna sh- we need to get her to come and help us you know and who end up like having this like reverence for butterfly as you know mm-hmm. uh as a kind of like mystical being and who you know eat the seabirds for luck and that kind of thing and you know some of that is because like well they're laborers and like mm-hmm. un- unlike um each they don't have time to like they haven't had the time to like study maps and think right. about like you know whatever forms of reckoning he's doing but i i mm-hmm. really like the um on 197 as they're still just in the midst of the ocean
1: mm-hmm.
0: um all things were reduced to their elemental being water was ocean air was sky earth their ships fire the sun and their thoughts the fires banked down some days kaim woke and lived and watched the sun go down again and realized he had forgotten to think a single thought that whole day and he was the Admiral, um, which is like a great passage and a mm-hmm. really interesting idea of this interstitial space. Right. Mm-hmm. In which like the sort of we're getting a kind of cosmology, you know, um, that gets translated into their very specific material conditions. But mm-hmm. also being in that sort of, you know, I feel like if this was, um, you know, if, if instead of Kaim, it was like... Um, Uh, Bistami or bold having that experience Mm -hmm. they would understand it to be something spiritual but for kyle it's like i'm the admiral and yet i'm not even able to like track what happens between one day and the next
1: yeah completely i had that same section marked because uh it is just so um sort of visceral and like i love (laughs) it's very funny image actually is like oh i didn't have a i didn't think today Oh shit! I'm the admiral. I'm supposed to be yeah. thinking. Oh no! Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, yeah.
1: Also yeah. relatable, honestly. Also relatable. very relatable. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, yeah. It's this book resonates on a number of levels. Um, when you're just like, like you know, my house is not a ship that's floating in the Dahai, but it uh, it does uh, <laughs> sort of feel that way. Um,
0: on your on your little boat. Um yeah.
1: So, yeah, let's see. The next page, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. The next page they sail into San Francisco Bay. Um and it's a wonderful uh rendering. Um 198. So they sailed into a bay like nothing any of them had ever seen in all their travels. An inland sea, really, with three or four rocky islands in it, all hills, and hills all around, and marshes bordering most of the shores. The hills were rocky on top, but mostly forested. The marshes lime green, yellowed by fall colors, beautiful land, and empty. Um, Of course, we find out that they're not empty very quickly. Not empty. But... Um, At the same time, I just want to linger on that because I love imagining. I love and I'm also incredibly saddened by (laughs) imagining what California specifically was like uh, before colonization by, you know, Europeans, obviously, Um, because it just I'm from there. Right. I'm from Southern California. And just driving around, you can just feel how badly like western civilization fucked up in ruining that place um it's like its potential for beauty is so incredible and we and it's just completely paved over i feel like san francisco has you know escaped a little bit of that fate that southern california did um but still to think of it as this kind of you know pristine place um is you know it's it's i want it, to it's it's really like beautiful but also really sad and like suggests a kind of utopianism too that maybe it's like an inverted utopianism i'm not sure but um i don't know what i i want i was wonder what you what you think of that um that about its about its utopianism i guess i don't know
0: yeah i mean i think that this is um you, you know the kind of um <sighs>
1: So, i mean on I, the one hand it so, also feels like a very common story of america like told from an outsider's perspective and this kind of fantasy of you know this edenic unspoiled paradise thing um which i feel right. like it's not i don't know if it is that or not here if he's like reproducing it in a in a different way
0: i think that we have this so yeah i think i think there's a um I think there's a bunch of like really interesting kind of play here. I mean for one thing like um if you know if we do think that this you know for one thing like this may be for the American reader at any rate like one of the f- the first location in the book that you could just identify it based on right. like you know a combination of like guess and descri- and description right, right? right. um and also, you know, a kind of funny guess, if you think that, um, of course, this must be the story of arriving at the at the new world. Like what, you know, like even, even that that would be kind of like um, a possibility has something to do with the stories that were told about our own history, right?
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and as they come in and are trying to like, you know, they're in the as they come into the bay, they're like all in the comparative mode, right? What is this like? What is this like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and their their first perception of the land as empty, I think, is exactly like the colonizers' perception, right? You know, just as like um, early world maps like very, you know, very deliberately rendered, you know, big chunks of the globe as empty, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, Terra Nullius available for colonization, right? Um, and that first perception, but that first perception is interrupted for them very quickly because they see the smoke. Mm-hmm. I mean, so at first it's empty and then they see the smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think particularly from Kim's perspective, you know, he does say this is the source of the peach blossom spring right i
1: think each um, says that each oh is that. it each who says it mm-hmm.
0: um so they you know they do make the association with utopia right? right and exactly with that with that pastoral um utopia the simple life um i think it's Kaim who sees the as they're walking along and he sees all the animals mm-hmm. he thinks oh i come from, i come from a human world and this yeah. is a different world right yeah yeah um Which is a perception actually that we see um, in book one. I think both Bold and Q, um, as they wind up in the slave, from their time in the slave markets through their time in China, continually come up against being in a place that's so, these places that are so densely peopled, that are so ruled by um, human life um, and human life patterns rather than the life patterns of any other living things. You Mm -hmm. know, like I think they, Right. So we've kind of seen that before. Um, but I think also sort of pushing against the, they don't hang with those perceptions very tightly, partly because they recognize that the people who they meet are people. Mm-hmm. And they very quickly become to come to perceive that the Miwok people who they meet um, have their own highly developed language, mm-hmm. they have their own way of life. Like, you know, we get that kind of initial like, oh, they don't even seem to have agriculture, but then they realize pretty quickly they don't need to have agriculture right. because, because there's no reason for them to live that way given the place that they live in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a kind of like, uh the sort of counter we get to that kind of colonizing perspective is both that they don't colonize the place although they do do one of the you know they do unintentionally Mm
1: -hmm. do one
0: of the um you know most sort of like seriously um criminal things that colonizers do just to make people sick Mm -hmm. but um uh but also you know like Uh, because they recognize that these are people here who they need to figure out how to communicate with. And I, for me, like the, um, on, uh, almost right after they, so like on 200 to 201, which is the first scene of encounter, Mm um, uh, uh, almost the first thing that they, get in their attempts to sort of like share information are the Miwoks who they meet making this incredible three-dimensional map on right. the beach. Right. Um, you know, down to on 202 um, showing the coastal range snow with snow-capped mountains indicated by dandelion fluff. Mm-hmm. Um uh, all of which like gives them, uh, but when they were done, the Chinese knew their gold came from people who lived in the foothills, their salt from the shores of the bay, their obsidian from the north and beyond the high mountains, once also came their turquoise and so on, all without any language in common, merely things displayed in mime and their sand model of their country. So, there, so you know, if to them, this is a place that's not on the map and thus could be available for conquest like they right away encounter, like we see right away that the people who live here have their own map and it's extremely Mm -hmm. detailed and they're very ready to say like, this is our world, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like, um, yeah.
1: Well, I think also the attitude that the, the, the fleet arrives at this place with having been completely stranded at sea and completely Mm -hmm. at the mercy of the elements and stuff also, And and the fact that they are accompanied by this scientist, Yi Chin, this this doctor who has a deep desire to understand and know the world, also sort of influences their, these two things also influence their um, reception uh, of these people, not as, as potentially not, you know, objects to colonize or conquer or whatever, but as people who are offering them help and they are de- in desperate need of which, which they're yeah. in desperate need of. Right. Um, uh, it also probably helps that they're not wearing any gold, which as we'll see, or no, they are wearing gold. They do have <laughs> they some are, They gold, are wearing
0: gold. Yeah. But like they've got uh, like golden turquoise and stuff. So they, yeah. they have the shiny, the shiny stuff, <laughs> but it's not as,
1: but, but they're also obviously like very poor people. Um, like, like, like uh, Keem says this to Ichin at a certain point, like, uh, that, that they, that these are, these are poor people. This is on, that's on two, 200. They just must eat the clams. They don't have like uh brick or wood. Um, there's obviously no iron, all of that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I, I think that the, the, the point about the, when we get to the smallpox or when they, you know, um, accidentally like transmit the smallpox Um I think that the the contrasts are so interesting, uh, yeah. but all, but also the similarities, right? Like yeah. that the book basically posits that there are certain inevitabilities if you know the the world will ev- if the world will eventually be like globalized, and there's essentially no way to avoid having smallpox, having old world diseases imported into the new world, and causing massive damage right um but because but there are other contingencies in history like china quote-unquote discovering america rather than europe under different circumstances and with different people and different um, structures of feeling and different epistemologies and beliefs um, There, those con- contingencies can profoundly alter the way that um history like unfolds so there are certain like sort of structural inevitabilities but then um history didn't necessarily need to unfold that way based on other like contingencies and some of those are within the control of human beings and some of them are not within the control of human beings and it's just really fascinating the way that the book that the novel lays out those those kinds of intersections and possibilities right
0: yeah and i I think that the that kime uh you know uh for all that, for all that he's an admiral, um, he doesn't seem to be as we might expect from the um, person whose name begins with K. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to be someone who's like super into, uh, you know, uh, patriotism or mm-hmm. loyalty to his emperor or anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it's like very hard to imagine um kaiman and Ichin as as uh here as quote representatives of something you know mm-hmm. um in many ways it seems like you know like you were saying like partly they need they make landfall just because it's the only way that they're gonna survive um and then once they're in many ways like their encounters um, with the Miwok seem to be much more driven by Ichin's interest in mm-hmm. knowing things and figuring things out and the crew's kind of joy in being in this different place, right, right. than they are um, by any idea that, like, you know, we're going to plant a flag here. In fact, they show no, um, they show really no signs of, um, uh, of doing that at least in this, at least in this part of the chapter.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Um, I thought we should read the bit on um, what you were referring to before on 204 to 205, where yeah. we have the the sort of reverie in this kind of very different natural world. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is interesting is that the kind of, um, you know, it's not only that like with, um, with European colonization, we get this kind of mapping procedure that renders parts of the world that um, were in fact inhabited um, empty, Um, but we also get this kind of like, um, uh, this constantly comparative consciousness um, and an account of what history is that says that like, you know, history goes through certain stages, um, you know, uh, culminating in like property ownership or <laughs> or whatever, and when you meet uh, people who don't live, you know, who seem to live to you uh, in a in a prior moment, right? Like behind you on in in those stages of history, mm-hmm. then like they're fodder for colonization, right? Because either because they're savages and they don't mm-hmm. deserve their land, or as was you know often justification. Um, for settler colonialism it's still a justification for settler colonialism they don't use the land right Um, you know, often that was about saying like, well, they're not developed. Like they don't have like certain, you know, they don't use certain kinds of materials and also they don't have agriculture. Right. Right. That was like, you know, and actually still, I think that this is still like a way in which um, settler colonialism continues to proceed is by saying like, these people don't use the land. Right. And here's what we're going to point to, like, how do they even feed themselves or Mm -hmm. whatever? Um, and here I think, you know, we see a group of people who, as you said, live, um, in a way, you know, without like surplus, mm. but actually live in a world of um, that is very abundant. Yes. You know, And abundant in a way in which they don't just eat clams yeah. out of the bay. Right? right. You know, they actually they actually eat a wide variety of things without having to grow food, without well, having to practice agriculture. Right. Well, there
1: are certain staples that they can rely on, like the dried salmon and acorn mash. But then there are other things that. That, that are just plentiful that may may have more or less of them at a certain point, but um, that, that, that will always be there to, 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 to be eaten. I like that idea of no, n- there's a lack of surplus, but there is abundance like those two things. We don't think about them as separate necessarily, but that's a really important distinction to make because they are distinctions about relation and how you relate to um the, well, one thing is the, how you relate to the product of your labor. The other thing is how you relate yeah. to the, uh, what, what you find surrounding you, right?
0: And I think that the sort of, like, the, you know, the story of, like... Um the necessity of people, you know, the 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 historical necessity of peoples turning from, you know, a quote unquote hunter-gatherer existence to an agricultural one, and thus settling down and stopping moving as the anchor of like what can count as civilization or culture, like, you know, that's a very particular story about what humans are, a story that works quite well um, for a sort of like colonial perspective on the world and who gets to own the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are other ways of understanding um, just how complex life uh, can be and culture can be absent like the rooting in agriculture as a sort of like base for the growth the supposed necessary base for the growth of civilization right uh um, so, yeah read, but the, let's read that yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so so here they are on a hunting trip uh came in each in with with tama who's the headman. um the meadow was marshy by the stream grassy above it with stands of oak and other trees tufting the air There was a lake at the lower end of the meadow that was entirely covered with geese, a white blanket of living birds, all honking now, upset by something, complaining. Then the whole flock thrashed into the air, groups swirling and fragmenting, coming together, flying low over the hunters, squawking, or silently concentrating on flight, the distinctive creak of their pumping wing feathers loud in the air, thousands on thousands. The men stood and watched the spectacle, eyes bright. When the geese had all departed, they saw the reason they had left. A herd of giant deer had come to the lake to drink. The stags had huge racks of antlers. They stared across the water at the men, vigilant but undeterred. For a moment, all was still. In the end, the giant deer stepped away. Reality woke again. All sentient beings, said Ichin, who had been muttering his Buddhist sutras all along. Kyme normally had no time for such claptrap, but now, as the day continued and they hiked over the hills on their hunt, seeing great numbers of peaceful beaver, quail, rabbits, foxes, seagulls, and crows, ordinary deer, a bear and two cubs, a slinky, long-tailed gray hunting creature like a fox crossed with a squirrel, on and on, simply a whole country of animals living together under a silent blue sky, nothing disturbed, the land flourishing on its own, the people there, just a small part of it, Kaim began to feel odd. He realized he had taken China for reality itself. Taiwan and the Mindanaos and the other islands he had seen were like scraps of land, leftovers. China had seemed to him the world and China meant people built up, cultivated, parceled off, ha by ha. It was so completely a human world that Kaim had never considered that there might once have been a natural world different to it. But here was a natural land right before his eyes, full as could be with animals of every kind. And obviously, very much bigger than Taiwan, bigger than China, bigger than the world he had known before. Where on earth are we? He said to Ichin. Ichin said, "We have found the source of the Peach Blossom Stream." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just great. I mean, that really speaks to the, what you were saying before about the kind of, uh, you know, this vision that they have is of like a world that coexists with their world that they haven't seen before. But like, for us, it is a vision of a lost of something lost, you know? Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And for them, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it it is both, it is something maybe lost, but also just a completely different possibility, like just a completely mind altering Mm -hmm. experience to see this. And I'm thinking back again to the contrast between Kaim and Columbus, right? Like, that Columbus had a destination and an idea of what he wanted to do, which was, like, go get a bunch of shit and kill kill a bunch (laughs) of people and bring it back and get rich, right? Whereas, um, and so, you know, he and his people uh, approached the um, Arawak. Is it the Arawak? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, With a certain attitude. And here... Two things happened with Kaim and his crew one is which one of which is they were going to establish a colony or some kind of imperial outpost on a known you know country uh, among known rivals so this was in the guise there there the attitude that with which they set out was in the guise of like regular old statecraft like everyday kind of like power politics or whatever and then this like hundred and sixty day um journey across the the ocean completely like recalibrates their sense of reality as well like Mm -hmm. that other passage Mm -hmm. that you read where he's like i don't even know i what is a thought you know and they they have the basically the same or even a worse experience on the way back where it's just like they're they they are just they, they completely uh dissociate in a way um right so that by the time they you know, like it opens them to a possibility of, to to certain possibilities that they didn't even know really existed in a certain way. So what I'm saying is like Columbus was going on a track that he, you know, thought he knew and was very, um, you know, comfortable with in his genocidal stupidity. Um, whereas Kime and his crew, you know, by necessity have to be opened up to, you know, the possibilities that accident opens. Right. Um, uh yeah i don't know it's fun to it's kind of interesting to think about i think um
0: yeah and i I think that that like i mean i think that's really well put i was just thinking you know i mean of course columbus like you know and we can just include all we can just have him stand in for all all colonizers
1: (laughs) yes for sure he stands in yeah
0: (laughs) but uh 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 at this level of analysis but the yeah. uh, you know like you know of course like famously like he um translated everything back into his own terms right the people mm-hmm. that he met were indians that's what yeah. he expected he exactly. expected to be in india those were indians yeah um uh but but here we have a moment you know and i i think that we see um, You know here's a moment of like immersion in a place that is different Mm -hmm. and like the revelation is not about the revelation that Kaim has is not so much about this place where he is as a kind of like glimpse of of estrangement from the place that he's from right right? you know thinking thinking because of course like you know however populous and um highly developed the china that he comes from is um, like also part of why it seems that way is because it has an emperor and these power structures that say we, well, we are the center of the world and this is the world, because of course that, you know, like huge space is not entirely filled with, um, with people or cities or Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know? Um, but I was also just thinking that like that moment on the ship, which, you know, is this kind of, um, it doesn't seem like Time does not experience that as a sort of spiritual revelation, but it has some of the quality of a spiritual revelation, right, mm-hmm. to understand that those, you know, those elemental forces, you know, invoked in, like, um, prayers of various kinds are there, materialized, like you're actually living in and through them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but here he he really like gets he gets closer to it you know that that when Iqin says all sentient beings you know um, right. uh, you know Kime for once doesn't think that this is foolish right? right he's he's feeling like the kind of revelatory quality and it's interesting because the moments of um, intense um, sort of spiritual awareness of the configurations of the world that we've seen. In the previous books, have been in in uh, these spaces of emptiness or abstraction, and in, in part, right, like um, Bistami at the at the shrine, seeing mm-hmm. the as the world becomes white, mm-hmm. right, and the mm-hmm. the sort of you know the the inner light comes out of things. Um, but here, you know, it's it's more like this immersion in an environment and in a and in a living in a living world and that mm-hmm. perception of these creatures in their extraordinary variety as all other sentiences, you know, um, is a very different kind of spiritual perception. Not that he particularly follows through on the spiritual, but I do think that that, that moment has something to do with the kind of like closeness and care that he comes to feel for, um for butterfly Mm -hmm. and that kind of like central relation in which he is trying to like care for and protect this little girl Mm -hmm. um who they you know in this like terrible tragic scene that repeat that repeats a lot of you know like a lot of colonial stories take away from her Mm -hmm. people
1: yeah yeah um so winter sets in they have he has another sort of experience experience in the sweat lodge where again it's less it's it's less um kind of spiritual or hallucinatory than it is what he really takes away from it is a kind of new relation of thinking about the women in this society who are all very confident their feet are unbound what does it say um their feet unbound and their eyes clear and without deference. Like it's a completely different, like set of gender relations. Um, also winter is very mild, like extraordinarily mild. Like they can't even, <laughs> they can't even believe it. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, again, like uh, as a native Californian, it's easy for me to like, forget that uh, California has that kind of like uh, a magical pull on people's imagination where it's like, <laughs> you mean it's like this all year long? <laughs> Like, uh, yeah. Um, and um, so, but then, of course, smallpox, um, the inevitability of smallpox. And um, they end up taking Butterfly with them and just doing this really uh, bad job of explaining, kind of uh. does a really bad job of explaining. I mean, what's so interesting is that, like, their previous gestures and mimicry and mime were so communicative at the yeah. beginning of First Encounter. And here, it's just no communication is possible between Kaim and Tama, even by uh, getting Butterfly to translate for him. He tries to act it out. He tries to get her to say something. Uh, the message just doesn't really seem to be conveyed. And you get a kind of, I guess you get a kind of hint on the other side, on from Tama's side, about just the complete recalibration of of you know of knowledge of of what the world is and could be with this totally unknown disease and then this this man kidnapping your daughter and telling you to like (laughs) go scatter and uh don't talk to anybody about this or whatever like right quarantine quarantine yourself for two months and it's just these are words and ideas and concepts and and also a physical experience that this man is is having like he he has the pox on his on his hands and and face and neck he is going to die um uh, of the uh, of this of this uh disease that's totally unknown that is just sort of deeply befuddling to him and just extraordinarily sad and emotional for us
0: i was i also thought about that like but this is this failure because we talked we talked previously about like gesture and communication and like um, forms of communication in the novel other than spoken language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also really struck by, you know, that they, they do or at least they think from the perspective of time um, and each that they they do feel like and it seems like they did a really good job of communicating like earlier on. But then in the moment of crisis, it just falls apart. And is it because like the, you know, is it because it's a crisis, you know, and he's like Mm. trying to row away and of course, butterfly who is six years old or whatever is not going to be like, yeah, let me, I'm going to do a great job of translating right right now. Um, well, I'm terrified, um you know, is it because it's the moment of crisis? Is it because just like the concept of like the transmission of sickness, which clearly they, you know, get to, they, they they get to some extent, but they don't, you know, it didn't occur to them that this could happen, right? So Mm -hmm. they don't have enough of a knowledge of it that they could have forestalled this possibility. Is it because it's too conceptually hard to translate their gesture? Yeah, you know, um, is it just like a kind of, like this kind of accidental moment like, you know, I I think that so, I mean, I think this connects to something you were saying earlier, but part of what is painful about this scene is them trying to remedy something, you know, that they have, are able to think, Oh my God, this was inevitable. Right. We should have been able to think about this. We didn't think about this, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but then their attempt to remedy it can only be to try to get away from there as quickly as they can and make these like essentially, you know, futile gestures outward saying, You guys gotta scatter, then yeah. you'll be okay, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, come back in two months. Like, good luck. Um <clears throat> yeah, that's um it's it's just as devastating.
0: It's it's so moment. upsetting. Yeah.
1: But so they they rush back to the boat um and they set sail for the south to try to get the 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 current back to the west. Um, and Butterfly immediately stops speaking her native language, which um, which Kaim, um is sort of horrified by um, on two ten he says. Uh, The speed of her adjustment to her new life only made him more uneasy. Was this what they were then to begin with? So tough as this? So so forgetful? Able to slip into whatever life was offered? It made Mm -hmm. him feel strange to see such a thing. This kind of, you know, are people really this malleable? Um, Which is interesting. It's kind of the flip side of the the kind of reverie he was experiencing among the miwok themselves that that these are people i recognize them as people they live in a completely different way than me um and uh it, 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 it which is incredible and overwhelming but then the flip side of that does mean that like a hu- like a human being or human being in general means that there must be this incredible flexibility within being human And I think that the sort of like the abruptness that Butterfly is able to adapt or abandon her own life is, it's kind of like uncanny um, uh, this uncanny sort of revelation for him as well. So,
0: yeah. And it, yeah. And it like repeats in um, when they're on the, when Bold and Q are on the slave Uh ship after um, Q is is, uh, castrated and his, you know, he goes through the fever and then Bold, looking in his eyes, Bold thinks, oh, this is a new, a new spirit is in mm-hmm. this body. This is not the same boy. Um, but, he, you know, he has some doubts about that, whether this could have been a spirit that was just like traveling along with him the whole time um, or whether this is actually like a new life. But whatever, we have that, um, you know, we have that idea of like, you know, um this form of reincarnation or coming anew into the world in the moment of crisis. And, and here the sort of, you know, we don't really know, cause we don't get, um, uh, we see butterfly from the outside and we see her obviously as like mm. this extremely smart, highly adaptable child. Mm-hmm. Um, although in some ways they seem to have like picked her, you know, they they at least think that they've picked her at, ran, <laughs> at random.
1: Right, right. I mean, they, because they, any she,
0: any yeah. ch- any child could learn the language quickly, right?
1: Right, but but she also picked them not only because they're in the same jati, but because she's extremely talkative and like social and and right. and curious, right? And 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 bold, right?
0: Right, and bold, right? Yes, exactly. Although in this, you know, she I mean, she could be any any little girl like she's mm-hmm. not like she's certainly not specified for us in the way that um what's her name from the pre beginning of the previous chapter you know who i'm talking Bistam-
1: about? Bistami? no
0: no 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 um no 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 uh
1: coquila no
0: yeah yes Coquilla. right um who's born with the two spirits struggling right. yeah, yeah, her yeah and yeah. one Macaulay. spirit went on yeah. i mean Right. But, but Butterfly, we don't get that kind of like, what's her perspective on things? Like, we really don't know, you know, like, um, I mean, maybe we think certain things about her if we associate her with the other B characters. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, she is, like, we don't we don't know whether what we're seeing is just the adaptability, the malleability of a young child who is, you know, is actually highly adaptable to different situations mm-hmm. and whose brain is extremely plastic and thus can learn other, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, can learn other languages, can adapt, you know, can forget quickly. We don't know whether that's what's happening or whether some other kind of spiritual transformation is taking place in her or whether those are just, like, words for the same
1: thing anyway you know right 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 um so they they sail south and they sail south and south and south and south and they can't believe how big this island is and finally they start to see more people and they see a begin to see a town um and uh <clears throat> that there are uh people inhabiting this town they don't speak language uh that um that uh, butterfly speaks they they seem to share certain features of architecture um that they are familiar with and again they're kind of comparing they're constantly comparing what they see to what they know to try to figure out you know where they are who these people are who they came from um all of that stuff um the, the encounter with these people in South America uh, goes much differently than their encounter with the Miwoks um, for various reasons, I guess.
0: Yes, I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although it, do, it seems like they, um, uh, you know, they kind of, they head into things in a relatively similar way. Although certainly their eyes are drawn right away to the how much gold is being right. uh, is being
1: used in they've construction. Got, they've got a lot of bling. Yeah. A lot they, of, got- <laughs> they have a very flashy uh, culture.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. But then very quickly they just like um, it turns out that like they've arrived at very different kind of society that is Mm -hmm. highly organized Mm -hmm. highly structured Mm -hmm. um definitely has some kind of um uh priestly class and Mm -hmm. some kind of extremely powerful emperor Mm -hmm. um uh and also like is uh you know we get much less of a sense here of um you know, we get less of a sense of, like, what's going on on the side of the Inca. I feel like that we do what's going on on the side of the Miwok, who mostly mm-hmm. seem to be, like, willing to be hospitable and, like, you know, interested in aspects of these travelers who have arrived. Um, I think that the... My feeling here is that, like, we just, like, know less about what the kind of motivations of the Inca are. Right. Um, and things... And and uh, Kaim seems to, like... Uh, be less good at kind of like, um, he fails to predict what's, what seems actually quite predictable, which is basically that he and butterfly get uh, kidnapped and dragged up an extremely frightening, uh, mountain climb, uh, and are on the verge of being sacrificed.
1: It is really wild, uh, and like you just can compare the, their this climb of the mountain to the climb of the mountain that Tama took them on while they were hunting. Oh um, yeah, yeah. It's a really great sort of subtle contrast. Um, I mean, well, I mean, it's a subtle contrast in that it's the same activity, but it's a uh, not subtle at all in terms of <laughs> what is actually happening and where they are. Um, this like incredible march up the mountain that just. seems to never end and there's a one point where he where uh, they get so high uh, that says uh, on 218 uh, Kime began to understand that clouds which often now lay below them existed in a colder and less fulfilling air than the precious salty soup that they breathed on the sea surface once he caught a whiff of that sea air perhaps just the salt still in his hair and he longed for it as food as for food hungry for air he shuddered to think how high they were um, and they were not done. They keep climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, and yeah, all along the, the this whole encounter, he is constantly being sort of seeing things that give him a bad feeling, but he never really, you know quite acts on it in part because he's not in no position to um, until uh, the kind of definitive moment comes. But at one point uh, the next page, he says, Uh, the blanket given to butterfly was so long it looked as if she were wearing a buddhist nun's dress and it was made of such fine cloth that kaim grew suddenly afraid he's like oh this is this doesn't seem good um and uh and but he has deduced that there's like an executioner god (laughs) that is not a good sign um (laughs) no and uh but he, and he also has extremely limited ability to act until, you know, the final sort of decisive moment, which is just a thrilling sort of action scene too. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it seems like, it feels like this whole sequence, um, which, yeah, you know, like he, he keeps trying to make this strange sequence familiar in some ways, the landscape familiar. Right. He thinks about Tibet, right. Um, um uh Uh. he you know he thinks like okay i i can recognize what's going on here and partly it seems like well he can kind of recognize what's going on because like he does also come from a culture with an emperor um with you know the possibility of vengeful gods um mm-hmm. right yeah. um and a and a place where like definitely you could be like summarily executed by mm-hmm. um uh summarily executed by the emperor's whim. Um but I think this this part is also like crazy to read because um so we're like in the early like early seventeenth century now, right? Yeah. Uh
1: like I think sixteen it's like, Yeah, like mid 1600,
0: 1610
1: I think it's mid seventeenth century actually. Mid- I mean one thing I think reason I think that is because at um when Kaim, uh, when Kaim um, dismisses the idea that it's the divine wind, he says things are just, the world is getting colder right now. We're in this weird cold phase. And that's just, and, and the this like doldrums is just part of that. I think that kind of refers to the little ice age. Right. Um, so that's like early, mid 17th century. Yeah.
0: But the, like the Wanli emperors, right. I look, look this i looked this up okay. <laughs> his his reign ends in 1620 so if it's oh, okay. the same if it's the same in this world it must be a little bit before yeah that right okay. yeah but yeah. it but in any but in any case it's substantially after the moment in our world when the yeah. um inca empire is destroyed right, right you right. know when the like extraordinary slaughter and destruction of these um uh of these cultures in what in our world is now south america mm-hmm. um uh so that which gives this very like um that's what at least for me that's one of these moments of thinking like um you know about like the the sort of like the the worlds of possibility cut off by colonial conquest, right? Mm-hmm. And and here you know, here they, you know, they encounter an Inca civilization that is still going, right? right? And is like powerful and extraordinarily materially rich and et cetera, et cetera. Um and then also as it turns out, like not super friendly to uh foreigners. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they are friendly to foreigners and they just, like, got some bad vibes off these they, people. It's, like, uh, hard to know, right? It's possible.
1: <laughs> they have a funny way of showing it. Um, so, yeah, they, uh, it's a pretty badass action sequence, kind of. Like, the, the, the executioner god slits the throat of the young boy. He's about to, like, kill Butterfly. Uh, Kaim shoots the executioner god dead. Bullet through the And this throat. is the first
0: time the guns have come out, right? Exactly, in- yeah. In California, they kept them. They yeah. just left them on the ship, right? Yeah,
1: they they yeah they kept them under the kind of yeah they kept them under wraps. Um, and also, when they when the Miwok came onto the ship, they weren't interested at all in the like cannons or anything like that. They they just showed no interest in them. But um, but here, yes. Yeah, so and and it and uh you know he's Keim surmises that they're really more afraid of the sound than of the blood in a certain way that he's um mastered like the power of 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 lightning and and just at the last minute like each in and his uh group uh rescued them uh they they make a mad dash back down to the ship um and they kill a bunch of people like anybody who steps to us just shoot them especially the people with the biggest like uh headdresses kill them um and uh Uh, march right on 223 march right down the road at them singing drunk again on the grand canal so they're singing this like drinking song just shooting them it's kind of like uh what if we were singing like a tub thumping by (laughs) chumba wumba that's what i that was my comparison that's my comparison Uh, good lord yeah Uh, good lord horrific uh
0: right and then at the at the end, as they're finally like getting back on the boat, so he, you know he basically demands provisions. Um, yeah, but he doesn't kill the hostages. Um, and then he untied the hostages himself, gestured for them to go. He gave each of them a pistol ball, curling their unresponsive mm. fingers around them. Yeah. We'll be back someday, he said to them, us or people worse than us mm-hmm. he wondered briefly if they'd catch smallpox no way to tell the locals stumbled away clutching their pistol balls or dropping them their women stood at a safe distance happy to see that he had kept his pantomime promise happy to see their men freed kime ordered his men into the boats they rode out to the ships and sailed away i mean i i my feeling is that the giving uh, giving them the ammunition and thus the possibility of figuring out like, you know, how you make those explosions Hmm. is a little bit of that, like, um, you know, the cue, like hatred of empire
1: Mm. coming Hmm. out. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I was fascinated by that, but I was fascinated also by his, yes. Like Kimes whole moves of like, just kill the people with the biggest headdresses. Um, and, uh, demand it you know instead of slaughtering the entire population or whatever just demanding food and provisions and then getting the hell out of there was a really interesting um, move and it spoke to me it felt like because um, I don't know there's you know there it, it there, the the idea of like moral relativism is, kind of probably you get into kind of a danger zone when you have a white man like Kim Stanley Robinson writing about like a globe of non-white people. And there would be that kind of like maybe like initial nervousness or something. But I think what's interesting here is that there's a kind of baseline humanity that, um, rejects the idea of say like human sacrifice. Like that's not cool. Like we can all, (laughs) I think we can all agree that human sacrifice is a bad thing. Um, whether it's done uh, by the Incas uh, of two children or whether it's done by the by the United States Empire of like black and brown people, because the market, the line of the market needs to go up. And it doesn't really matter if those people or people in old folks homes are dying of coronavirus. Uh, we're going to yeah, sacrifice exactly. them to the to, that's a human sacrifice what's happening. And it's like capitalism writ large is like a giant human sacrifice. And that's not cool. And I it's, think we can agree on that. I think
0: we can agree. I think we can agree
1: on that. Um, and I, so I, and I yeah. say
0: up up against the wall for anyone who doesn't agree.
1: Hey, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shoot them in the head. Um, so then they're back on the great ocean. They're back on the Dahai. And um, it for a while it goes pretty much similar um they're they're kind of floating around they're having a fun time with uh, butterfly a little bit swimming in the ocean and things like that but then things get kind of pretty bad again um they're running out of water uh and then suddenly they have way too much water there's a giant storm and um butterfly is thrown up against a wall and uh breaks some bones and ends up passing away also again very tragically and sad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and this yeah. is this is also just a harrowing mm-hmm. amazing scene of like shipwreck and um ocean voyage and 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 stuff. Uh tre- tremendous uh, description.
0: Yeah, and again in the this moment of like you know, in the contrast to that moment of like the the abundance of the place where the Miwok live and Kaim having the experience of understanding the sentience of all the life around him on 232 here in the scene of deprivation, um, here not, you know, chosen fasting for spiritual ends, but there's nothing, there's mm-hmm. nothing there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have this sort of repetition of the idea that a day can go by without having a thought, but here I think something somewhat different happens. Um Time's thoughts left him. He found that when thoughts left, things just did themselves. Doing did not need thinking. One day he thought, sail too big cannot be lifted. Another day he thought, more than enough is too much. Too much is less, therefore least is most. Finally he saw what the Taoist meant by that. Go with the way, breathe in and out, move with the swells. Sea doesn't know ship, ship doesn't know sea, floating does itself, a balance in balance, sit without thinking. The sea and sky melded, all blue. There was no one doing, nothing being done. Sailing just happened. Thus, when a great sea was crossed, there was no one doing it. Um, which is, it is this moment of this kind of like, you know, I think there's a kind of um, mix here of Taoist and Buddhist thinking, um, and this really interesting also account of like, you know, um, the way in which surviving is not a matter of agency, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, a form of living that's not about the assertion of agency over a situation. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think that that kind of, um, you know, this come, this comes to him in a way that like is also what leads him to say in probably a rather, misguided way to the emperor um you can you could conquer all that land in a month and bring back all the treasure Mm. um and yet still the greatest treasure in that land is already lost and Mm. like we don't know whether that is butterfly or uh not being invaded or or what it is um Mm. but it seems like that you know his saying that has some uh which seems to have sealed his downfall has some relation to that experience he has on the ship of um um a kind of spiritual understanding of you know the diminishment of self or the oneness Mm. of self and world Mm,
1: mm. yeah
0: uh and then we're then we're in the bardo again a particularly like uh action-oriented bardo sequence which is very enjoyable um which my favorite part of it was um so Kali is there um, judging Butterfly, and Kaim gets um, extremely irate at this and starts attacking um, uh, Kali, cuts her in half, um, mm-hmm. ignoring the other members of his jotty who stood up there with Butterfly, all of them jumping up and down and shouting, oh no, don't do that, Kaim, don't do that, you don't understand, you have to follow protocol even each in who is shouting loudly over the rest of them. At least we might direct our efforts at the diastruts struts or the vials of forgetting something a little more technical, a little less direct. <laughs> it's like they're having like a great argument about like direct action. And, right. uh, you know Here <laughs> in awesome. the Bardo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but of course, you know, whatever cutting Kali in half does <clears throat> not uh, make a difference.
1: Yeah, uh, it doesn't work like that, Butterfly informed him as they panted off together into the mists. I've seen a lot of people try. They lash out in fury and cut the hideous gods down and how they, des- and how they deserve it. And yet the gods spring back up, redoubled mm-hmm. in, in other people. A karmic law of this universe, my friend like conservation of yin and yang or gravity. We live in a universe ruled by a very few laws, but the redoubling of violence by violence is one of the main ones. I don't believe it, Kaim said, and (laughs) stopped to fend off the two colleagues now pursuing him. Uh, He took a hard swing and decapitated one of the new colleagues. Um, uh, it's, It's a great, these are great images. And I have to say, I, so with another reading group that I didn't record for a podcast, this was, purely for leisure and not for like the, the hard nosed business of podcasting. (laughs) Uh, I read, uh, I've, I Mm -hmm. just finished reading uh, Dante's Inferno and, Mm -hmm. you know, read Dante's Inferno (laughs) next to any Kim Stanley Robinson book. And I think you'll have a favorable uh, comparison. Like, He's an incredible author, and these images, especially in the Bardo, are very worthy of the kind of horrific things you encounter in dante's inferno the 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 amazing kind of imagery that uh dante uh lays out in a in incr- in an amazing poetic style i mean I don't think there's any compar- comparing like Terza rima and like the 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 achievement the the kind of like super supreme artistic achievement that Dante created in the divine comedy, uh, just like a, a perfect, you know, poem to, you know, any single K- KSR novel, maybe his entire work, you could like put them up against each other or something like that. But, um, I think it's, I, I've reading those two at this, these two at the same time, I found extremely rewarding on an, in a number of levels. So, um, if you're looking for <laughs> other things to read,
0: you recommend Dante's
1: Dante. Inferno? Yeah, I see. I'm serious. I wouldn't uh, joke about something know, like this.
0: I I know you wouldn't. I know you wouldn't. I mean, I honestly, I would take uh, KSR any day over um, many writers, including Dante. But yeah, um... yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I know, dead white man. I get it. I get it.
0: Mostly because he's dead.
1: Yeah, mostly because he's dead.
0: Mostly because Dante's dead, I, like, don't like that about him.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. He's, ew, he's old.
0: That's an identity I'm not into.
1: Right. (laughs) Ew, he's old, he's dead, ew. He's old. Um, Anyway, I thought I'd mention that. Oh. Okay. Hello? Oh. Hello? Yes, you're here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay.
0: There's a cat in between the microphone and me. (laughs) That that
1: (laughs) explains why you're...
0: I have I've, I've put a free uh, muffler on the microphone between the microphone
1: between the microphone and me is your follow up to Tana <laughs> Hesse-Coates' book. Oh, just, God. Yours is just about cats, <laughs> whereas his is about race. <laughs> okay, I get it. Okay. Get it. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. We'll cut, we'll cut this part out. Cut that part out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, Man, well, uh, this is a great book. I'm really think, enjoying it.
1: I think it's a pretty good book. Um, the next book is The Alchemist, book four. This is the longest, or maybe the second longest, book of the novel. So we're not quite sure how we're going to do it. It may be one huge long episode. We might break it up into two episodes. And there also might be, uh, we might be taking next week off because I am um, uh, moving next week. So um, the, ne- the 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 next week of my life is really uh, hectic and pressured and stuff like that. But we will see. We will or will not we'll have see. an episode next week, but we'll definitely have one the week after that, I would say. Um, yes, for sure. Thank you for listening to our show. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast on Mars and email us at Marooned on Mars at podcast at gmail.com and rate and review us uh, at Apple or wherever you get podcasts. And uh, it's a perfect time to sign off because uh, we're experiencing that latency problem. It makes Hillary sound like a robot. Because uh, I am. Uh,
0: okay. Thanks for listening.
1: <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Beep, boop. <laughs> Beep, boop, boop. Bye. Bye.